University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Jesus tells a really simple parable in Luke chapter 8, verse 4. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked out the plant. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I just love a a good story. Jesus has amassed this crowd uh, just right in the thick of the story. He he begins to tell us the simplicity of a farmer who's throwing out seeds, not just in the field, but along the path, in the rocks, and among the weeds. And the fate of the seeds is dependent on where it landed. I've always found it an interesting task of ever trying to grow grass wherever I've lived. It's amazing how difficult it is to grow grass, but it's amazing how weeds will grow up where I was trying to plant seeds for that grass. It's a a remarkable human exercise of frustration. And that's the simplicity of this story that Jesus is telling. Jesus' primary audience in this day would have been agrarian. They were rural farmers. They were merchants. They were peasants. These were people whose lives literally patterned and depended on agricultural seasons. And though most of us didn't grow up on a farm, we get Jesus' story at the most basic level. But what does all this represent? What are the seeds? What are the birds? What are the rocks? What are the thorns? What is good soil? Well, look at verse 9. His disciples asked him, what does this parable mean? Jesus said, the knowledge of the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that though seeing they may not see, and though hearing they may not understand. You ever been driving down the road with a friend and that familiar song comes on and you both start singing that song, but then it comes to that point, that particular line where everybody starts to mumble the words or they just stop singing altogether. There's something about some songs that are sometimes confusing to us. So when I was a kid, I thought Elton John was singing, Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. And of course, Who's the Boss was a great show, but I couldn't figure out why he was singing about Tony Danza. Or of course, another famous line that sometimes people confuse, this is the dawning of the age of asparagus. Actually, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, or this classic line from Billy Joel's song, We didn't start the fire, it was always burning, said the worst attorney. The actual real line is, We didn't start the fire, it was always burning since the world's been turning. So I can imagine that Jesus is telling the disciples this parable, and they're just nodding along because they knew exactly what he was talking about, except when we get to the end, they were super confused. And at least they didn't act like they knew what he was talking about because one of the disciples blurts out, what does the parable mean? Except Jesus' response is equally 
perplexing. He says, uh, you've got to be given insight into the kingdom of God. You know how it works, but there are others who need it in stories. But even these stories sometimes can be complicated. Their eyes are open, but they cannot see. Their ears are open, but they cannot hear. And I know there's been plenty of times in my life, specifically in grade school, where I can think about a teacher that was teaching me and asked me a question, and I just don't get it right, and so I ask them a clarifying question, they explain it again, and I still don't get it. And it's not stated, but we get the idea that the disciples and the crowd still don't get it because Jesus is about to do something that he doesn't do with the rest of the parables. It says in verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear it, and then the devil comes and takes up the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy, and when they hear it, but then they have no root. They believe for a little while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with noble and good hearts, who hear the word, retain it, and by preserving, produce a crop. What helps when Jesus clarifies the parables, or tells us exactly what we're supposed to know from them, and we've heard this before, don't, don't let Satan steal the word from your life by falling into the temptation of fill in the blank. Remove the rocks from your life so that the seed can take deep root. Spray spiritual roundup on the weeds of your life so that the Word of God can thrive. You want to be good soil. So here are the five catchy sermon steps to make your life good soil. And please don't think that I'm being disingenuous. These are all very important things that we should cultivate the opportunity for God to sow and nurture and water and grow within our lives. We, we should be seeking out ways to be uh, going beyond the greatest temptations, to do the hard work of getting rid of the rocks in our life, to pull up weeds from their roots so that, that God can produce nutrients and goodness in our lives. And our challenge is exactly what Jesus says in verse 10, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not understand. There are a, a myriad of reasons of why we do not see and hear the word of God that can bring radical and positive and beautiful and meaning transformation into our lives. And if we're all honest enough with ourselves, most of us can think of the reasons of why that doesn't happen. We can think of the rocks and the weeds and the birds in our life. We can think about our obstacles and our shortcomings and our failures. We are not perfect people. I know, I, I hate to break some of your hearts who believe that your pastor is perfect, but I am not perfect either. However, I think that Jesus is doing something a little bit deeper here than we've always interpreted. I think Jesus is trying to show us an aspect of the kingdom of God that maybe is, is much deeper beyond the surface level of what we're understanding. Less than 100 miles from where Jesus uttered this parable is one of the most volatile places on earth. It's the Dead Sea region. It's the lowest place on earth. The sea itself is toxic. There is no aquatic life in the Dead Sea. And the ocean level, uh, in, in normal salt ocean level, is about 3.5%. 
while the Dead Sea salt level is at 33.7%. So around the sea is is rocky and salt-filled soil. The region only receives an annual rainfall of about four inches. It's pretty much the worst place on earth to grow anything. So a group of horticulturists got together to create a rainforest in the region of the Dead Sea. They caught the limited water through, through mulching to infiltrate the soil. They intentionally planted trees in a certain pattern and growing communities. They cultivated fungi and bug life to support the ecosystem around the tree. And what makes this project more impossible is that they were able to use only 5% of the annual rainfall to create this forest. And with an impossible task, they could re-green the desert. With an impossible task, they can solve major erosion and pollution issues in the desert. With an impossible task, they can provide produce for food-scarce areas with something that seemed impossible before. And I think I want us to see this morning from this text that, that this is what Jesus is trying to show us in our life. That often our lives are like the Dead Sea region, and God doesn't simply give up on us because it's difficult for us to grow and to mature and to become something different. See, looking back at the story, didn't it seem odd to you that the sower seemed to be scattering seed everywhere? It, it didn't even seem to make sense. Don't you think that he would take the time to sow the seed where it's only going to produce the crops that are needed, not in the... the the path, not among the rocks, not among the thorns, but maybe that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us about God's transcendence in our lives. Maybe what Jesus is trying to tell us is that no matter the situation, no matter your station in life, that God is going to generously sow into your life again and again seeds of hope and joy and peace and grace and love. What if it's Jesus is trying to show us that, yes, our lives are not perfect, and yes, there are moments in our life that we are not ready to see and hear the wondrous mysteries of God, but God doesn't stop sowing in our lives? What if Jesus is trying to tell us that he knows the existence of thorns and scavenger birds and stumbling rocks are in our lives? whether created by us or forced on us, and he knows that those things hinder us, yet God is going to continue to sow generously out of God's abundant love for you. Can we open ourselves up to the reality that God is a generous sower, casting seed into our lives no matter what the landscape of our life is? Sometimes we use products every single day, and we don't realize that we've been using it all wrong. So take, for example, uh, the to-go top of a cup. Let's just say you go to a restaurant like Superior Grill, and I would assume that the thing that you're drinking or taking to go is probably iced tea or soda or something along those lines. But on, on top of the lid is this, this lid that has all these weird ridges on it. And some people think that it's there so that you can stack multiple cups on top of each other. But if you've ever tried to do that before, you know that that doesn't work for the long term. The actual design of that lid is, is not for a purpose that you've ever used it for. It's actually for you to take it off and to put it under the cup as a coaster. Sometimes things that we use every single day, we use all wrong. And I think that's another lesson from this parable. 
Too often we look at the parable of the four soils and we think that the only implications for this story is for our own personal spiritual journey. But I think Jesus is doing something again with the kingdom of God through this story where he's turning our understanding of this world from what it is backwards and turning it right side forward. Simply put, the kingdom of God, the, the seed grows to become the sower. Those who choose to follow Jesus are, are called to sow God's seed of hope and joy and peace and truth and goodness and love and grace into this world. Jesus' followers are transformed from the seed into the sower through the gospel. But of course we know that. It's not just this parable, but Jesus tells us in those famous words from Matthew 28, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Or Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are God's sowers. We are distributor of God's seeds of the gospel in our world. Or to lift the words directly from the Bible, we are God's evangelist in the world. Is there a common word that people use that just makes you cringe? So some of those common words that make people cringe, uh, here is the top five or six list, if you would. The word phlegm, some people get really grossed out by that. The word ointment, that's a gross word. I don't know why, but it is. Curd, slurp. I think the sound of somebody slurping is disgusting. Maybe not the word that's disgusting. Uh, goiter. But by far the word that turns people off the most and it makes the top of my list is the word moist. For some people, when they hear the word evangelist or evangelism, it's a word that makes them cringe. In fact, a recent Barna study found that 20% of the silent generation, 19% of the boomer generation, 27% of Generation X, and 47% of the millennial generation believe that evangelism is wrong. And I think there's a lot of reasons of why we struggle with this concept of evangelism, especially when it comes down to our role in it. That word has all to become associated with a particular form of Christianity that started in the 1730s. And even from its early days of the movement, its most famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, that word has become synonymous with his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. For better or worse, the evangelical movement has been associated with shame and guilt and judgment. I mean, these are the people who did give us heaven's gates and hell's flame flames, or those scarehouse Halloween-induced uh, fears to conversion. And whether we like it or not, too many people have seen the word evangelical wrapped around the evangelical movement that has weaponized ethics and politics and discord within America. There's an association for a lot of people with evangelism with tracts. Do you remember these things? You ever pick up a, a $20 bill with so much excitement and then you unfold it only to find that it's a fake $20 bill and it's got an evangelistic track in there? Is there anything that will turn you off Christianity more than counterfeit bills that are Christian tracks? For others, we struggle with the concept of evangelism because we fear that we don't have the right answers. If someone asks us why we believe in God and why we are transformed by God, in fact, a recent study found that many Christians report that they don't know how to respond when someone raises a question about faith. For too many, we see the nature of Christian messaging as one associated with um, what we believe versus 
changing how somebody believes. In other words, we believe that we are called to be God's salesmen in order to be an evangelist. As if the gospel is intended to be having all the right answers so that people can turn to that particular truth. You see, some, we struggle with the concept of evangelism because we want to not be intrusive in other people's lives. We don't want to tell people that they need to change or that something's wrong with them. We don't want to give that message of hellfire and brimstone. Still, for others, we think evangelism is the role of the church or the professional clergy. Let's leave it up to the folks and the institutions to take care of that. And for others, we might not see ourselves as the sower because we're too caught up in judging the soil of other people. That's clearly bad soil. Let's not sow seeds there and waste our time. And still for others, we struggle with that term evangelism because we don't see ourselves as good enough. Like Jesus is, is calling us to be perfect before we can somehow share a message into people's lives. In 1987, the cult classic movie, The Princess Bride, there's this character, Vassini, that constantly uses this word inconceivable to pretty much describe everything encounters. You remember this scene? Let's play it. Just very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. What if the way that we talk about evangelism is maybe I don't think it means what you think it means. What if I told you that our concept of evangelism in the sense of evangelical turn or burn message or fake $20 tracks or having all the right answers or selling people on Jesus are all wrong? For one, Jesus was never preaching a message of turn or burn. In fact, the only time that you ever see Jesus preaching a message of hellfire and brimstone is against the self-righteous religious people who are isolating other people. And you could fact-check the context of all of those passages where Jesus preaches such a message. Evangelism isn't the role of the salesman. Jesus never went around and said to people, let me prove to you of why you should believe in me. Here's some really cool miracles to make you think I'm awesome. Evangelism isn't standing on a street corner telling everyone that God hates certain people and the end is near. In fact, Jesus warned against people standing in the marketplaces and preaching such messages. Evangelism isn't the Roman roads walking people down through some cherry-picked scriptures to tell people just how awful they are and how much they need God. Evangelism isn't about being a soil tester of figuring out yourself of who you believe is deserving of receiving God's seed in their life, determining whether they are rocky or in danger of scavenger birds. Evangelism is not about being a perfect person who, after a lifetime of getting it right, you can finally tell other people what they need to do with their lives. Evangelism isn't about having all the answers to life's hardest questions about God and the world and how this all works together. We keep thinking evangelism is all of these particular ways, but I do not think it means what you think it means. You see, Jesus gives us a glimpse into what sowing seeds into people's lives looks like in the story surrounding this parable. 
In chapter 7 of, of the gospel leading up to the story alone, we see that Jesus steps over the societal and political boundaries by caring for a Roman centurion who believed that Jesus could heal his servant. Only he begins to step into the lives of this widowed woman by resurrecting her son back to life. Jesus is in contentious debate with the religious leaders who can't believe that he let a sinful woman wash his feet. You see, Jesus constantly was not preaching a message to other people, but he was invading people's lives with goodness and love and grace and justice. And through such thing, Jesus was sowing seeds into their life. Jesus casts out demons. He turns people's life around. He heals a woman who's suffering. He resurrects a girl from the dead. And through this, he shows us what it looks like to cast seed into other people's lives, restoring their hope. Every day, you and I walk around our homes and our neighborhoods and our grocery stores, our, our work, our gyms, our parks, and we're leaving traces of ourselves that we didn't mean to. Whether you realize it or not, you've left a part of you every place that you go, every person that you encounter, whether you speak a word or not. In fact, your body is constantly shedding cells and dead skins and hair follicles. That's right, a part of you is left everywhere you go and the people you pass. I think that's what Jesus wants us to see through this parable. Is that you and I, every single day, are leaving a part of ourselves among the people that we encounter. Whether we realize it or not. Every encounter we have, from work to school to grocery store to the restaurant to fitness clubs to ball games to neighborhood encounters, we are leaving traces of ourselves within people's lives. And whether we realize it or not, we have a deep impact on the lives of everyone around us, whether it be the guy at the cubicle next to us or the teacher across the hall or the parent in the drop-off line or the lady in our fitness class or the guy asking for money on the side of the road or a lifelong friend or that annoying neighbor who always wants to talk incessantly. You are leaving something in their lives. And Jesus is calling us to sow seeds into people's lives no matter where we go. And he's not asking us to preach a message to people. He's not asking you to get that crazed look in your eye that says, can I tell you about Jesus today? However, each person we encounter is an opportunity to live out the way of Jesus before others in the same way that Jesus encountered every single person. We have the extraordinary opportunity every day to cast seeds of hope and peace and grace and mercy and love and joy and kindness and self-control and love. And sometimes this is as simple as looking into the eyes of a person and acknowledging their humanity. At times it's profoundly speaking words of healing into conflict. At other times, it's the extraordinariness of, of living out the way of Jesus among other people. And each encounter, each person we see and speak to, we are casting seeds of God's living word into their life. And yes, at times, we are called to speak words of the gospel into other people's lives. And sometimes we're going to come across soil that is rocky. 
Sometimes we're going to come across soil that is scavenger burden laden. Sometimes we're going to come across soil that is filled with weeds in our lives. We see this in our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our strangers. These are people facing hardship and disappointment and heartbreak and pride and conflict and addiction and control and isolation and fear and failure. And instead of walking away to find someone else who has better soil, God is calling us to roll up our sleeves and get dirty to cultivate the soil through Jesus' love. One of the most ancient teachers, Gregory the Great, said, The good we do has no value if we fail to be patient with the evil doings of our neighbors. Now, small note, what a nickname, Gregory the Great. Do you think he gave that to himself? I don't know, it's a pretty cool nickname. Will we get our hands dirty? Will we get our fingers cut? Will we get our egos bruised? Will we have an ache in our back from the work we have done? Absolutely. But imagine the impact that you can have by being intentional about the way that you show up, the way that you listen, the way that you speak and act into the lives of others, realizing that every single day you are having some sort of impact why not have an impact for the kingdom of God? As one person put it, Jesus' approach to mission is quite at odds with our play-it-safe play instincts. He gives us freedom to take risk for the sake of the gospel. He endorses extravagant generosity in sowing the word, even in perilous places. The question is, who around us has obstacles in their way? And are we willing to, to dig into their lives, to get our hands dirty, to get nicked, to pull up the roots and the rocks and the thorns so that Jesus can take root in the lives of other people? Jesus is calling us to roll up our sleeves and intentionally cultivate the soil in other people's lives just as God is cultivating the soil in your life. But will we sow seeds of hope and grace among the people we encounter? Will we act in the way of Jesus, casting seeds of joy and love into others' life? What would it look like if you were to listen to the crisis and heartbreak of others, sowing seeds of commonality and comfort? What would it look like if you were to speak words of transformation, sowing seeds of goodness and power unto other people's lives? What would it look like if you were to share the story of how God has transformed you sowing seeds of relevance and authenticity into other people's lives? What would it look like if you were to invite people to encounter the God who has transformed you by sowing seeds into their life? We see through the parable of the four soils, through story, Jesus is turning a backward world in the right direction. May we come to see that Jesus desires to course correct in our lives and in the world. God desires to cultivate the soil of our life to produce goodness and a life to the full. And in turn, God empowers us to be seed sowers in the world that desperately needs God's redeeming love.